Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, thank you for coming out an hour early. Hope you're awake. How are you feeling out there? Feeling good, wide awake, ready to go? Ready to pay close attention to the Word of God as we work through uh, the text of Scripture today. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3 today. And uh, we will delight in what God teaches us. This is a very familiar text. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, perhaps one of the most familiar, uh, but I trust that God will uh, teach us much as we look at this together. The nature of genuine faith is sometimes difficult for Christians to grasp. There's so many different perspectives on what genuine faith looks like. Many people believe that faith is like a magical pill or a silver bullet that enables us to be victorious in this world. So have faith and you will have success. So you can name it and claim it, or you can bind it by faith so that your troubles melt away and successes come. But then we get into the real world of the Christian life and experience, and we notice that's not normally how it goes for us. When we try to name it and claim it or bind something from afflicting us, in, instead of it working, often we remain in financial insecurity, difficulty, challenge, and we become overwhelmed in our Christian experience. Perhaps you feel weary today. You're here today. You made it somehow. You're here, but you're weary because we're in a pandemic, right? We're, we're in the middle of a month, months-long pandemic. And some of you in the midst of this pandemic are caring for your elderly parents. You're not only concerned for their physical well-being. You're trying to help them day in, day out, month in, month out during this pandemic, and you're becoming overwhelmed. Some of you are caring for your children. It feels like summer vacation uh, should have been over months ago. Like, when is this actually going to get done, right? It started way too early. That, that it's just going to keep on going forever and ever, and you get overwhelmed. Uh, to be fair, I think some of our children are overwhelmed that they, they feel trapped in their house. I'm always with my parents. They're always looking at me, and this is going to go on for like ever and ever. When is it going to be done? Perhaps there are other ways you feel overwhelmed in the midst of this pandemic. If you're like me, I just want it to be over. Like, when is this going to be done? And then I look at the numbers and I just see, okay, I think it's going to continue. It's going to go on for some time. We're so ready for it to be done, but it seems like it will never stop. But that's where I think Hebrews 11 and 12 can help us. Hebrews 11 reveals what true faith is, and we've already seen this. It's in the pages of Hebrews 11 in God's word that we learn that faith does not always overcome affliction with physical successes and triumphs. For instance, look at the end of Hebrews 11. We've looked at this somewhat together already, but look at verse 33. And and in these verses, 33 through 35, we see God intervening with miracles and providential acts. This is what the name it and claim it group would really emphasize. Look at verse 33. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. 
come to this place in the text and we love to emphasize all these victories and triumphs, right? But you keep reading and you realize that sometimes faith means that you endure in the midst of affliction and difficulty and challenge. Look at the middle of verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Do you see that in your Bible? Verse 37, that's where I'm at. Hebrews eleven thirty-seven. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. This happened to faithful followers of God. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Hebrews 11 then reminds us that the Christian life is not always one of victory and success and freedom. We must remember that when we're in the midst of our pandemic, difficulties and trials. But I think Hebrews 12 is helpful too because it demonstrates that the life of faith requires something else. It requires endurance. If we think that faith is the key to bring victory and success, we might grow weary and ask, how, how can things be so bad for us? I mean, we have faith. How can it still not, be, how can we not be released from these things? We might grow discouraged and quit because I think we have a wrong view of the Christian life. Wrong view of the Christian life. It's where the author in Hebrews 12 will correct us and he'll talk to us about how God uses trials and afflictions to, to discipline or train us as his son. It'll give us this challenge to endure. So it's our task today to begin Hebrews 12, looking at verses one through three in a text that I think has encouraged thousands upon thousands of believers who have grown weary in the midst of adverse circumstances. Look at your Bible at Hebrews 12, verse one. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Beginning of this chapter, the author turns his attention from the Old Testament faithful to his audience, to his original readers and us by extension. The listeners are taken from a tour of the Old Testament heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 to a stadium where they're competitors in a foot race. It's just like really quick transition. Okay, I'm just considering all these faithful people. Now I'm in a race. What's going on? Here the author gives a metaphor where he compares the Christian life to a race. And the main idea of this metaphor in verses one and two is found in the one main verb. Okay, so if, you're, if you ever mark in your Bible, you might consider marking this. I've, I've underlined this, this verb in the text. This is the main thought. The one imperative is run, run, right in the middle of verse one or actually near the end. Let us run. Got that underlined in my Bible. The rest of the passage tells you things about running. The word run is surrounded by participles and prepositions which tell you more about how and why we are to be running to run in the Christian race. We'll look at all those 
descriptions in a, in a little while, but at the beginning, I, don't, I just don't want you to lose this, this imperative. The main thought, the main concept, the main challenge is for you to run. You got that? Okay, so that's the one part of the sermon you need to really pay attention to. Okay, if you get nothing else, get that. Run. Notice the author doesn't say walk. It's not shuffle, crawl, meander. No, those words, those aren't what he wants. It's not rest. That's not what he says. It's run, run. And these sort of texts are very important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. They push us forward. They challenge us to get up and do something, right? Run, what the imperative says. There seems to be a modern fascination today in the church with resting and leisure. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians call for things like margin and rest in the last several years of my ministry. Well, I would acknowledge to you that there are texts that talk about the need to care for our physical bodies. And there are also texts that talk about God's creation, what he's designed for us, for our enjoyment and rest. But let me push back on that a little bit. Okay, well, actually, let me use scripture to push back on that a little bit. It says, run, run. Also mindful of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Paul says there, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but only one receives a prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in the all things. They do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I'm not meandering, Paul says, without a goal. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I bring it under control and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. Many in the modern church today might say, well, Paul is so legalistic. He's dis- I, I think Paul's theology is right. I think he's relying upon the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification, but he understands the Christian life is one of running. He uses athletic metaphors time and time again to push the church to consider how they might live their life for the glory of God. Who would doubt Paul's heart philosophy expressed in Philippians 3, 13, and 14? Don't you just love those verses? I don't know if there are any verses that get closer to the heart of the apostle Paul and his desire to pursue Christ. He says, but this one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies before, I press toward the goal of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Men and women, I could read other texts. I could go on and on and on. I won't, but this text clearly says run. So back in our text, I love the call to run here because I think it clearly demonstrates a proper view of sanctification or spiritual growth. I was reading through the works of J.I. Packer here recently, powerful theologian and writer who recently went home to be with the Lord. My favorite statements by Packer is him describing the Christian life. He says, the Christian motto must not be let go and let God. It should be trust God and get going. Emphasis added. Trust God and get going. Packer, of course, was confronting the old Keswick theology. If you just like sit down, you rest, you let God sanctify you, you just enjoy life, you just, and that Old Keswick theology is still cranking out new mantras and values and demonstrating itself in evangelicalism today. 
Today, the new mantra might be relax. Enjoy life. Enjoy creation. It's a source of God. You don't need to run. Or maybe that's the way you do go about running. Through enjoyment and pleasures. Perhaps you've heard of the name Eric Liddell. He's better known, I think, in some circles, at least older people, as the Flying Scotsman. Eric Liddell was an Olympic gold medalist as a runner, but what many people don't know is he was also a missionary, missionary to Japan. Liddell died at the early age of 43 in a prison camp in Japan in 1945. The Chinese had infiltrated into Japan and he died in that prison camp because of his ministry to the Lord. I love Liddell's most famous statement. I think this has made him more popular, at least the evangelical churches, than any other statement he said. He was talking about his running as a gold medalist and he said, he said this, he said, God made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Okay, so as, as men and women, as you come to this text, we must see that it brings God pleasure when he sees his children run in their spiritual lives, striving to please him in every way, pushing forward, not walking or resting, to find more ways to use the fleeting days of our life to bring glory to the name of God. Now, this text continues. So go back to Hebrews 12, and it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the main call of this passage. He says we're to run with endurance. The word endurance means that we're to demonstrate fortitude. It involves exerting effort and struggle. It's not passive. It's not passive patience or something like that. The author could have said, run with speed, But he doesn't do that either. Instead, he says, run with endurance. Here, the image is not of a sprinter, but of a marathoner, a long-distance runner. So I love what the two parts of this little phrase emphasize to me. When I see run with endurance, you have running, the fervency, and the effort that's required, and you have endurance. It's for a very long time. Okay, and so men and women, I think we should leave here today with this imperative on our mind, and we should leave here asking God for grace through the Spirit. That's the only way you can run this way, right? Ask God through the Spirit to enable you to have fervency to run in your Christian life with endurance. So at the end, you're still standing in faith for Jesus Christ. That's the main point of the passage. To To that, I think the author adds three things in the passage, and this is where my outline will go very quickly, three points. Number one, he adds the motive, two, the manner of our running, and three, the means. So I take this passage, the motive, the manner, and the means. Pretty easy. First, the motive is at the beginning of verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is the motive that he gives us. For why we must run with endurance. We must run this way because we have a surrounding cloud of witnesses. Now, beginning part of verse 1 has always challenged me and perplexed me. It looks so simple, right? And and to try to understand what does he mean here. uh, Therefore, we should run because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I, I, I ask, 
at least three interpretive questions here to try to make sense out of this phrase and what the author is doing with it. These three questions have perplexed me. I hope they're helpful to you. First, I asked, what does the author mean when he says we're surrounded? Here, the, it's, a, it's a participle that makes more sense when we remember the metaphor he's using. He's using the metaphor of a race, and now he has people surrounding us in the race. I agree with what one commentary, how he described this. He, he said this. He said, the author invites hearers to envision a stadium in which Abel, Enoch, and Noah crowd along the track with Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, the judges, the prophets, and the martyrs. So it appears to me that in using the metaphor of the race, the author puts the faithful of old, those who've already finished the race around us. Perhaps the imagery of a long-distance race in which others have completed before us is helpful to you. It's, it's helpful to me because I never won races. I never crossed the line first, whether it was short distance or long distance. Perhaps the imagery of them already crossing the line and then beginning to crowd around the track is helpful to you. So we have this surrounding group in a sense, in the text. But there are other difficult questions we work through in the first part of verse 1. We also ask, in what way is this surrounding group great? He describes them as so great a cloud. And I want to talk about that for a while. The word cloud was a, a Greco-Roman way. It was a common metaphor to describe a large group of people, a crowd. Like you see so many uh, innumerable individuals, they blur into one like cumulative group, one large group. And, and then he describes them with the adjective, so great a cloud. They're numerous and significant. So the author has this surrounding great crowd around us. But there's one last question I think we need to deal with to understand this, this text. And that is, why does he refer to this large gathering crowd as witnesses? What does he mean when he says there's a large gathering crowd of witnesses? And that's where I think perhaps we've all heard preaching from time to time on this text. I think the predominant way this text used to be preached for years and years in our country is that the author is describing the faithful people of chapter 11. And that the author has a picture of them standing in heaven, looking down and witnessing how we run. Okay, so if you read any commentary from 40, 50 years ago or before in, in, in English, they'll probably take it that way. But there's been a push against that by scholars, and they, they think that that's not what the author is saying here. And I think that they say that for, for some good reasons, one of which is uh, they'll proclaim, and I, I would agree that there are no clear texts anywhere in the Bible that describe people in heaven looking down and watching us. Do that study of your Bible and look for that, right? We're a text church. You study it this week and you look for texts to talk about people in heaven watching us. It's not there. It's not clearly stated anywhere in the Bible. I think it's actually far more likely that people in heaven are ravished with the beauties of Jesus Christ and are worshiping him day and night and serving him. I, however, both agree and disagree with what scholars how they've reacted against this. I agree that the author is not speaking of these people as witnessing us from heaven. Instead, I think in the former chapter, Hebrews 11, we learn that their lives bore witness to God and to the faith. In their former life, they were witnesses to God and the faith. I will say, however, that the author does have these witnesses surrounding us. 
in the metaphor. But you know what? That's okay, right? It's okay because it's a metaphor. It's, it's an illustration. Um, you're not actually running right now, are you? You're actually sitting, <laughs> trying to stay awake in the heat. You're not running right now. And you are not literally, these people aren't literally surrounding you. It's a metaphor. This verse does not mean those in heaven watch what we're doing. It's a metaphor or picture to push us along. Many other believers have successfully run the race that we're to engage in. And one day we will meet them. And so I think the author of Hebrews says, faithful men and women from the past can provide motivation for us to persevere in our race. My favorite ways I like to do this, not only in reading scriptures, I love to read Christian biographies. I love to read of Ann and Ann Nyram Judson who pushed through and persevered. I love to read of Jonathan Edwards. I'm reading this massive biography of Jonathan Edwards right now. And I love to be challenged by his faith and how he finished. Uh, I love to read about Martin Luther, one of my favorite theologians, and John Calvin. I love to read these things and be pushed forward by faithful men and women from the past who persevered. And so as we're working through this text, I think he gives us this motive. You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, but then let's press forward. And the next phrase in verse 2, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. The way I take this is the manner of our running the manner of our running. We are to run by laying aside some things. That's the manner of our running. In the ESV here, I'll take a little bit of time just to show you. I, I think that they translate this a little bit improperly. If you've got an ESV Bible, you see in the middle there, it says, let us also lay aside every weight. And then you skip down a little bit and it says, and let us run. The way the ESV translates this is uh, you know, there are two parallel verbs in the text. As I told you before, there's only one verb. Everything else modifies it. And so this phrase is, is not a verb, but it's, it's telling us the manner in which we run. It gives, giving us the nature of our running. We run well with endurance by laying aside weights and sins. I'll just take a moment to talk about weights and sins. Uh, a lot of preaching will... We'll combine those two and say weights and sins are the same thing. I disagree with that. After studying these words this week, I think that they're two separate things, sometimes related, but two separate things. The word weights or weight here in the text speaks of an impediment or hindrance. This includes things that are not inherently sinful, but nevertheless distract us or slow us down. In the athletic arena, in a race, this would speak of excess baggage that someone might click uh, carry clothing, excess clothing, or excess body fat in some case. A good runner will divest himself of anything like this. Let me illustrate what a weight might be. Perhaps, let's imagine, you really got to use your imagination for this, but you and I show up to run in a race together. We show up to the race, I show up with, a, uh, with loafers on, a dress suit, a belt, and a tie. What would you say to me about that? Tie, suit, loafers, belt. You say, you got to lose the tie, Pastor. I mean, like you look sharp and all, but you got to lose the tie. You got to lose the suit, the belt. You got to find adequate clothing. And, and what would you say if I responded this way? I'd say, well, what's immoral or wrong about wearing a suit to run? You say, it's not immoral. It's just not very bright. That's the way I say it uh, in an adult and children's group. It's not very bright. 
for us, weights in the Christian life might be anything uh, amoral that draws our attention and focus off of Jesus Christ. And men and women in a culture like ours, it should not surprise us that there might be even more weights than there are sins that would prevent us from running well. We've got so much going on. We filled our life with so many things, so much work, so much travel, so many extracurriculars, so many house renovations, so much binge watching of, of movies and shows, so many video games, so much screen time and scrolling, so much time in cars and boats and kayaks and canoes and jet skis and so little time in the word. Men, men and women, we must remember that recreation is to be our servant, not our master. These things are good, but they can become a problem and hinder our running. Our lives are to project a laser-like focus on running for the Lord. Yet so often we're distracted by other pursuits. So if you feel yourself at the end of your spiritual stamina today, you might ask yourself this question. What is distracting me from running properly? Do I spend much time wasted on the internet? Is my video game collection more important to me than investing time in the things of God? Is the amount of time I devote to golf or other hobbies or binge watching movies limiting my potential to impact others for the cause of Jesus Christ, my family or my friends? We must set limits on the weights. That's the manner of good running. He adds to this, we must also lay aside the sin that clings so closely. When it's translated like that, you might think of the sin as being a certain sin or besetting sin that might cause us to really fall. And I think for some of us that might be true. But I think what he's talking about here is sin in general or sin in total. Of course, sin is clearly defined in Scripture as missing the mark, falling short of the glory of God. There are lists of sins in the Bible. These sins are clearly wrong. I think here in this text, what I emphasize to you is that the imagery is really powerful. It's the imagery of a race, and he, he describes sin as clinging closely to us while we run, right? It's like clothing. It's just like the wrong clothing. Uh, the other day, Levi and I went golfing, and it was 100 degrees outside, and I wore the wrong clothing. <laughs> I had this, like, uh, this polo shirt, it was just the wrong material, and I had a T-shirt underneath it. So by the end, you know, you ever been there before? It was just clinging to me so closely. I felt like I needed help to get it off, you know, when, when we were all done with the round. He describes sin like that. It just clings so closely to us. This is the manner of our running, men and women. And if we ask God for grace through the Spirit to lay aside these things, this is not a form of legalism. This is actually being concerned with things that might prevent us from running well, weights and sins. That leads us in verses two and three, and I'll, I'll say this quickly, to the means. The means become very clear at the very beginning of verse two and the beginning of verse three. This is how we're gonna run with endurance. This is how it happens. You feel overcome, overwhelmed, growing weary today. This is, this is how you can do it. Ready? Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Here's how you're going to do it, Colonial. Consider him. 
who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The means that he gives here are found in those two opening phrases, looking to Jesus, considering him. There are several things we can learn about Jesus in this text. The text says that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. The word founder, I think, speaks of the fact that he's the author of it. He's the originator of faith. The word perfecter means he brings faith to its completion or goal. And so Christ's sacrificial life and victorious resurrection brought accomplishment and completion to our faith. He's the one that is both the pioneer of our faith and the one who brought it to completion. I think this text is emphasizing he's not in the end, but he's the means of something. He's the means of something. I'll get to that in a moment. Here we learn in verse two, in the middle of verse two, that Jesus endured, and the way he endured was by discarding the shame of the cross. We're discarding here, I take not as despising, but as discarding. Christ did not detest the shame as much as he counted it as a very little or insignificant thing. Right? That's why I take despising the shame. Shame of the cross, the nakedness of the cross, and the torture of the cross, and the, 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 the ridicule of the cross. He disregarded it. It's insignificant. It's a little thing. And he endured the cross. Christ was tortured on that cross. Nails were driven through his wrists and his feet. Thorns were crushed into his brow. He suffered great blood loss. I'm sure he suffered shock and suffocation. He was tortured on the cross and he was tormented. He was tormented by the opposition of, sat- of a satanic host. He was tormented by a, the mockery of pharisaical leaders. He was tormented by the neglect of his heavenly father on the cross. Yet the text says he endured for future joys that were set before him. I think the thing that pulled Jesus through the cross, his finish line, was the joy of his resurrection, the joy of his ascension, the joy of his exaltation to the father's right hand to be seated there and the thought of the enjoyment of thousands upon thousands of worshipers in heaven. And so all of this brings us to the the place where we learn how to run. We learn it in those two paces that I just talked about. We learn by looking to Jesus. That means to fix your eyes on him. Literally has the idea of turning your, your, your gaze off of something else. For us, I think it's the noise of our culture. The attraction of those weights and sins I've already described. Turning your eyes off of those things and fixing them. On Jesus. That's how you're going to run well. Then he says, consider him. That means to think about him, meditate upon him. And so if you're here today and you found your stamina waning in these days, might I ask you if your focus has been taken off Christ, how much time have you spent reading the Gospels and looking for Jesus? When was the last time that you discovered motivation? and purpose in the life and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Men and women, my heart is burdened. I know many of us spend so little time looking to Jesus and considering him in Scripture and so much time on the weights 
and the sins. May God help us and give us grace through the Spirit to make us alive and to make us run well. Perhaps there are some of you who are challenged or convicted by the distractions. Way your life, you spend more time doing so many other things other than looking to Jesus, considering Jesus. The author gives us here the motive, the manner, and the means of running. It's important. Won't you commit afresh and ask God for grace through his spirit to run with eyes fixed on Jesus? Let's pray together. As I pray, I invite the worship team to come forward and prepare for our final song. Father, I love this text. It's been so rebuking and challenging to me. We hear so many voices, so many voices in our culture that tell us what the Christian race should look like. I'm thankful for what Paul says here. Let us run, Father. Let the members of Colonial Baptist Church run with endurance the race that's set before them. Lord, help us to do this and remember that the means to doing this is to be looking to Jesus who endured such hostility against himself and yet ran well. Lord, may we actually consider him today before we leave. So easy to tune out a preacher that you've heard time and time again. So easy to tune out a sermon. and This is like the 40th sermon in Hebrews to miss out on what the author of Scripture is challenging us to do today. Lord, help us to run with endurance. Through your Spirit, give us grace. Give men and women, boys and girls in our congregation, strength to cast off the weights, to be able to even diagnose what those things are that are distracting them, to cast them off. Give grace to young people, teenagers. Say, you know, I just don't even care that much about this series anymore. I just want more of Jesus. Lord, give us grace to have young people like that. But give us grace to have elderly people. Say, you know, I'm not just going to recline into heaven. I'm not just going to let go and let God do it either. I'm going to follow what J.I. Packard says, which I think references what the scripture teaches. And that is, I'm going to trust God and get going. Lord, stir us to run with endurance and empower us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.